0: All right, in all seriousness, our family was torn apart last week uh, over Sour Patch Kids candy. Here's the deal. My daughter, who's right over there, I love her, but we have serious issues. Uh, I'm a big fan of the orange and red Sour Patch candies. You don't know what Sour Patch is? I'm sorry, this church is not for you. We have lists of places you can go. My daughter, I don't know from where she came. Uh, I cannot be her real biological father because she likes the greens and the yellow Sour Patch. Now, we have had a bitter, bitter disagreement for years, and that um, bitter disagreement was going to be solved. It was last week. We put all the candies in various different tubs, and it was a blindfold test, and we were going to see objectively which one is best. And of course, all of us were hoping, well, I was hoping that everybody would choose the obvious, that reds and the orange are best. My daughter was hoping for sure that everybody would choose the obvious in her minds, that the green and the yellow would be the best. Twenty-five tastes. How many of us guessed right? Right. There was one lucky guess at the end, and it wasn't even your color. I mean, I can't tell you the disappointment, the profound disappointment. I couldn't even tell what my own favorite color was. In fact, I I put something in my mouth like, that's got to be orange. That's my favorite. I've had literally millions. And I was wrong. It was actually a green, which I thought was my least favorite. I mean, this rocked me to the core. And here's the conclusion. Maybe. Our opinions are often based more on preconceived bias than objective truth. Maybe our opinions are often based more on preconceived bias than objective truth. What determines our preconceived notions? What can... What is it that makes us think what we think and makes us believe what we believe and and gives us the convictions that we think we have? Well, there's a lot of factors. Primary among them is the family in which we were raised. You know, very obviously and very typically, the politics of your grandparents or the politics of your parents, which are yours, which are, you know, passed to your kids. Doesn't happen all the time, but that's generally the way it works. Conservatives give birth to conservatives. Liberals give birth to liberals. It's just the way it kind of goes. It's the whole culture of your family. What we believe about social, political issues, even religious issues, it's in the family. And then as we grow up, we have influences in our lives. It could be our our children's um, uh, Sunday school teacher, uh, youth pastor, mentors, coaches, teachers. They also have influence in our lives. So we get marinated in this sauce of opinions and convictions, political, social, um, uh, religious opinions. And we're marinated in this stuff. And then we get a little older, we choose our friends, and typically we choose friends that agree with us because friends that don't agree with us, there's not a lot in common and we're going to be fighting a lot and there's not going to be a lot of deep friendships there. So we tend to surround ourselves with friends that agree with us. Same thing with the media that we consume. If I were to watch a news outlet that doesn't agree with me, I'm just going to get mad and I'm okay being mad for a little while, but then I got to change the channel and I'm home. Right? They agree with me. This is normal. It's not bad. It's just normal. Normal. We marinate in the sauce that's around us, and so our convictions are pretty well automatic. I'm not much of a chef, but I do know that if you marinate a piece of chicken in teriyaki, and you cook it hopefully, it's gonna taste like what? Teriyaki. Our opinions, convictions, social, political, religious, are often just automatic. We've been marinating in this stuff for our whole life, so of course that's what we believe. It's just the way it goes. 1975, there was a a university study by Stanford, gave people a bunch of uh, sayings on cards. And the test was, is this true or not? Are these sayings true or not? And people would give their guesses. There was hundreds of these sayings. And half the group was told, you know what? Wow, you did very well. Half the group was told, you know what? You didn't do so well. At the end of this whole thing, they bring both groups together and say, you know what? None of you did well because there's only three cards in that whole hundred that were uh, true, and you all did terribly they walk outside the building, and then a surveyor comes along and says, how do you think you did on the test? The ones who were told they did good say, said, I did good. The ones that were told they did bad say, I did bad. Even though they were told objectively with data, they were all terrible. You know what this means? What we're told influences what we believe, not necessarily objective reality. They, these hundreds of people were staring at objective reality. You did terrible on that test but they were told so often during the test that they were doing well that that's what they actually believed. Maybe we actually believe some things that aren't quite right because that's what we've been told over and over and over again. So maybe our opinions are often based more on preconceived bias than objective truth. These are political, social, religious, especially those things because a lot of those opinions don't necessarily have objective truth around them. And so how we hold what we believe is real important in terms of how we're gonna foster unity or division. And here's a reality that that we are not going to like, some of us. A conviction based purely on objective truth is virtually impossible. We all come from certain perspectives. We're all raised in a certain marinade. We all have certain influences. We all have certain friends. We all consume certain media. And, And so truly, are we even able to have an objective opinion? Most people would say that's impossible. And unless we realize that, we are going to be proud and arrogant. We're going to think we're the holders and keepers of truth because that's what we've been told. And what ends up happening is then we become not only arrogant, but we become proud, and then we become judgmental, and then we're causing divisions because of our opinions that we feel are true but may not, may not actually be objectively true. If our brains resist one thing more than anything else is that we could B, what, wrong. Our brains resist that. In fact, if somebody says, I mean, just try this. Uh, try this at lunch. Oh, I really love uh, this, this carne asada burrito. No, you're wrong. Try that. <laughs> what do you mean, you can't tell me I'm wrong? Just telling somebody they're wrong is enough to just cause a fight right there. Our brains can't handle somebody telling us we're wrong. And so we entrench ourselves. We are right. My marinade has told me all the way in my formative years that I'm right. I cannot be wrong. Here's how this plays out in a terrible way. Red Sour Patch are better than green. And just to go after my poor little daughter with that fact that I feel is correct. It's not objectively correct, but I feel is correct. Sour patch reds are better than sour patch greens. Here's a better way to hold it. The better way is to say, you know, sour patch kids, the red ones, are better than green for me. Isn't that a softer kind of way of saying it? And that's really what saved our family this last week. (laughs) Honey, the red sour patch kids are better for me. The green are better for you. The best way to put it is this way. Now, this requires a lot of maturity. The best way is to say, hey, listen, I have not objectively analyzed the relationship between the Sour Patch colors and the Sour Patch flavor. But based on my life experience, I tend to prefer red candies over green candies, generally speaking. That's the most humble and probably the most correct way of holding a conviction or opinion. Proverbs 18.2 puts it this way. It uses the word fool, but I'm certainly not talking about anybody here. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinion. It is so much fun to air your own opinion. That's why I'm a preacher. (laughs) This is so much fun, and you're the victim of that every single week. So much fun to air your opinion. It is not as much fun to pursue understanding. What the word here specifically says is to delight in understanding or to take pleasure in understanding. What if we took pleasure in understanding, not just pleasure, and just, you know, Keeping the same opinions going and going and going and going without stopping and thinking not only about the, the position we hold, but how we articulate that and how we treat people who don't necessarily agree with us. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinion. So the question for us today is, well, why do you believe what you believe and why do I believe what I believe? And I think that's a solid question. Really ask why we believe what we believe. And again, we're talking about politically and socially and culturally and religiously. Why do we believe what we believe? Is it just a passion we have because it's the marinade we've been sitting in? Or have we really objectively analyzed this and have come up with sound conclusions? And even if we have come up with sound conclusions, how do we hold those? Are those hammers over people's heads to judge and to kind of lambast people and cause division? Or can we hold it in a different way? I'm going to suggest this. Passion plus pride equals radical division. It's not the passion that's the problem. It's not the conviction. It's not the truth that we hold that's the problem. It's how we hold that truth. If we hold that truth with pride, we set ourselves up as superior. We judge other people. That's radical division happens all the time. However, if we hold that passion, passion is not the enemy. If we hold it with humility, there could be radical unity. Here's what Colossians 3.12 says about it. I love this passage. Just listen to it. It oozes humility. Since God chose you to be holy people he loves, here's what holiness looks like. You must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Doesn't that just sound sweet? Doesn't that sound like what our country needs right now? Doesn't that sound what a lot of families need right now that are just at each other's throats? Tenderhearted, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's what God calls holiness. Being right is not really important if you're a jerk, right? How we hold our positions means every bit as much as the position itself. Now, we're in the series called Radical Unity. We just spent four weeks in the life of Jesus. How did Jesus hold truth? In fact, he was truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Yet he held himself with great humility, and he advocated for radical unity and and how he lived and what he taught, and even laid down his life for the cause of radical unity. Right after his resurrection, something happens that's profound in his church, this little community. This little community of disciples were all homogenous at first. This little community of disciples were all Jewish by blood, all Jewish by culture, all Jewish by religion. Um, They were all about the same age. They all came from Galilee, for the most part, the same sort of rural environment. They were all under the political oppression of Rome. They were all under the religious uh, oppression of of Jerusalem and the temple. They all had the same life experience, right? So it's a pretty easy group to congeal, pretty easy group to keep together. They all followed Jesus. He's the Savior. He's going to free us from this oppression. Then something happened very quickly after Jesus rose from the dead, Acts 2, 40. Peter continued to preach for a long time. (laughs) You ever think preachers go too long? It's been happening for 2,000 years. In fact, uh, this really isn't that funny, but uh, in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul preaches for so long that a boy falls asleep in the sill of a window and falls out the building and dies. I'm only laughing because he was then raised from the dead, but uh, preaching for a long time is a great tradition in the church. Um, Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000. Now, keep in mind, here's this little band of homogenous Jewish believers. It is the Feast of Pentecost, which means Jews from all over the world were there, from every sect of the Jewish religion, uh, different uh, ages, different languages, different cultures, Hellenistic Jews that weren't even Jews by culture. So here they're all over the world coming to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. 3,000 come to faith. Now this tiny little homogenous group of Jews becomes a more diverse group of Jews from the Pharisees and the Essenes and, and the Sadducees and, and the Zealots. They're, they're coming to faith in Christ by the thousands. And what happens immediately When the small group of sameness gets a little more diverse, Acts 6.1, as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. I know, shocking in the church. Rumblings of discontent from the very beginning. Now all of a sudden, it's not this cute group of sameness. It's a larger, diverse group, and everybody's complaining, my needs are not being met. Then things went crazy in Acts chapter 10. Here's Peter, a leader of the Jewish Jerusalem church. He is called by God to go to Caesarea, and Cornelius was waiting for them. Now, you ought to be panicked right about now. Cornelius is a Greek name. Here's a Greek family that's about to meet up with the leader of the Jewish faith called The Way, these these early Christians. Now, if you know your Jewish tradition, Jews cannot be in relationship with Gentiles. They're unclean, they're dogs. That's what they call them, unclean dogs. And here they are, they're about to meet, and then it gets worse. Cornelius called all of his friends, family, relatives together, and Peter enters his house. You ought to be stunned, gasping, just falling over, fainting. I mean, this does not happen. Jews do not go into the house of Gentiles. And yet God worked in the heart of Peter, worked in the heart of Cornelius over several chapters of the book of Acts, encouraging Cornelius and Peter, there's a day coming, you're going to meet, you're going to meet, you're going to meet. It took many chapters of the book of Acts to get them together. And when they were together, something amazing happened. Cornelius and his family placed their faith in the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. So not, no longer was Jesus just king of the Jews. He's now king and savior of the whole world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation when Cornelius accepted Jesus Christ. Acts 10.45, The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed. This cannot be happening. That the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the Gentiles too. Can anyone object to them being baptized? This baptism is, uh, has its roots in Jewish history, about dying to the old, raising to the new, the cleansing that comes in, in this situation by faith in Jesus Christ, being baptized into a new family of faith, One family of faith following Jesus Christ. Can a Gentile non-Jew be in the same family of faith as a Jew? They were looking for objections. Can anyone object? Someone please object. (laughs) This is crazy. They couldn't object and they did it. They baptized Cornelius and his whole household. Acts 11, Peter then goes back to Jerusalem. The Jewish believers, again shocker, uh, criticized him because he baptized somebody they thought could never come to faith. How dare you baptize this Greek? You entered the home of the Gentiles and even ate with them. That would have made him religiously unclean, according to the Old Covenant. They were less concerned about the person, about the man, about his family, about his standing with God, about him receiving faith freely given by God through Jesus Christ. They were concerned about their religious rules and regulations, which promoted radical division. Now, they later were swayed, Acts 11:18, 18, when they heard that God actually did work in Cornelius' life and in his family, they stopped objecting. So this really shows maturity of those Jewish believers. They could have entrenched themselves and said, no way. But they began praising God and said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. What an amazing thing, their hearts were beginning to soften. However, there was this one little problem. Men, hang on. Acts 15. While Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea, Jerusalem, the Judaizers, arrived and began to teach the new Gentile believers unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Imagine yourself, men. (laughs) You're a Gentile. You just received Jesus Christ. You heard about love and grace and forgiveness by God through Jesus. That you're standing with God is perfect. Perfect radical unity with God. And some religious person from this old covenant comes and says, oh, by the way, you have to have your wiener snipped. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. I I thought you said I have to have... Yeah, that's what we said. That's what the Bible says. You got to do it. And no way. What are you talking about? Yes, these... Judaizers were saying to these Gentiles, Jewish religion, Jewish traditions, Jewish scripture, you have now got to follow all of it, which includes the Sabbath day, the temples, the feasts, the festivals, the moral commandments, and circumcision. And they said, I don't want to do that. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with these Judaizers, arguing vehemently it's not necessary And finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, uh, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. They had to figure this out. They were going to rip each other apart. The Jews and Gentile Christians were gonna tear each other apart over their religious divisions, their ethnic divisions. They were radically separating, and in fact, they were at risk of becoming extinct. If in this Jerusalem council, this gathering in Jerusalem to figure this out, if the Jerusalem council did not go well, there would be no church today. If the Jews did not find a way to receive the Gentiles into the family of faith, we would not exist here. Because the Jews became, Jewish Christians became nearly extinct in 70 AD. All that was left virtually after 70 AD were Gentile believers. The Jews were being persecuted, killed, scattered all over the earth, Right? And so if the Jews didn't figure out how to accept the Gentiles fully into their faith, we would not be here today. Acts Acts 15, five. Some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised. They must be required to follow the law of Moses. That's understandable, given their heritage. They're Jews by blood. They love their old covenant. They love their Old Testament. They love their Ten Commandments. They love the 600 commandments. They love their religious commandments. They love their temples. They love their priests. They love the whole thing, right? And they're saying the Gentiles must follow the old covenant. It's the way it's been for us. It's the way it's been for them. God knows people's hearts, Peter said. Peter's passionately defending the Gentiles. God's about the heart, not about the external obedience to these religious commandments, And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. This is remarkable, right? There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for he cleansed their heart through faith. He's not cleansing their body through law, through religion, through temples, through moral codes, through religious fervency. It's cleansing the heart by faith, faith alone, in Christ alone. Now get what Peter says. Why are you, religious people, challenging God? Peter is saying, if you put the old covenant onto onto the, the backs of Gentiles or unbelievers as though they have to obey that to get to God, you're challenging God. By burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. So Peter has the humility to say, you know what? We love our old covenant, we love what's contained in the Old Testament, all the laws and rules and regulations, we love it, it's part of our heritage. But none of us were able to obey it, not a single person. Not the most fervent, faithful Jew is able to obey the law, so why would we give that to the Gentiles? Why would we put that as a barrier between unbelievers and God when Jesus came to remove all those barriers? Acts 15 11, we believe, and this is so key, we believe that we are all saved the same way, Jew and Gentile by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. We're not saved any other way. We're not forgiven. We're not given eternal life by any other way except by God pouring his grace freely to us through Jesus Christ, who died to pay for our sins, rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. That's why we're saved, through Christ and Christ alone. We don't have to keep the Saturday holy Sabbath. We don't have to recognize the holy feasts and festivals, the circumcision of of the boys. Uh, The Gentiles ate whatever they wanted to, right? They ate bacon, and the Jews were like, oh, that's disgusting, and I could never be a Jew. Gentiles did not have the same sexual standards as the Jews. Uh, The men had wives and mistresses. There was premarital sex that was common, and homosexuality and bisexuality were generally accepted in the Roman culture, not the Jewish culture. So they had all kinds of problems. They had old covenant problems, moral code problems, culture code problems, religious code problems, ethnic problems, every problem you can imagine. This thing was heading for a train wreck. And what did they do? I'm about to tell you a word that's gonna hurt some of you, but you've got to follow this. They compromised. They did what? they compromised with a spirit of humility and kindness for the sake of radical unity. Radical unity, keeping the family of faith together, having a wide open door for the unbelievers and Gentiles to come in was more important than peddling their religious laws and traditions. Get this, get, a- Acts 15, 19 is it. It is it, you ready? So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to return to God. If the evangelical church, I'm going to speak in broad swaths here, so I apologize. If the evangelical church would take Acts 15, 19 seriously and say, you know what? We are not going to make it hard for people to come to faith in Jesus. We're going to make it so easy for people to come to faith in Jesus. There is no law, religious codes, moral codes that separate. Our doors are wide open. Jesus pours out forgiving grace through Jesus Christ. He did all the work. We don't have to do it. Come to faith. Come to Christ. Come here and be loved. We're going to wrap our arms around you. We're going to love you. We're going to care for you. We're going to serve you. We're going to reveal Jesus Christ to you. We're going to show you the love of Christ by how we treat you. We're not gonna do what the Pharisee Christians here did by saying you've gotta obey the law of God in order to be accepted by God. Jesus broke all that down, so why would we build it all up? And get this, everybody, the Judaizers, and Peter, and Paul, and Barnabas, and Silas, everybody came to complete agreement at the Council of Jerusalem. That's a miracle. That's a miracle like on the order of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church came to unity to make it easy for unbelievers to receive Jesus Christ by tearing down all these walls. Wow, that was cool. Now here's the compromise, and it's a, a funky compromise, but it's important that we, that we know this. It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. We're not gonna burden you with the law. We're not gonna burden you with the 10 commandments. We're not gonna burden you with the rules and rituals. We're not gonna do anything, but we're gonna ask a few things of you. You ready? So the Jews on their part said, we're not gonna give you our religious codes. Not gonna do it. However, we would really appreciate, and in fact, we're gonna require this for the sake of unity. Abstain from eating food offered to idols from consuming blood of the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do these things, you'll do well, and that's it. I have no time to get into this, but basically the Jews were saying, listen, Greeks, I know that buying meat from animals that were sacrificed to idol is on sale all the time. It is, it's on sale. It was an animal that was sacrificed to a god. Then the meat gets on the kind of secondary market. It's cheap. But the Jews are saying, listen, we feel if you buy that meat sacrificed to an idol, you're going to pay for that idol and pay for their temple. And it just really bothers us. Don't do it. And it's not sacrificed right. And the blood is congealing in the meat and we just get grossed out. Can you please not do that? And the Gentiles, out of grace, said yes, we'll do that for you. You're not burdening us with the Old Covenant, Old Testament law, we are not gonna burden you by grossing you out with our on sale meat. (laughs) And then sexual purity, they had totally different ideas about sexual purity. Uh, The Jews had this biblical ideal that, that sexuality is a gift to be shared as, as really a humanizing, wonderfully intimate time, the merging of two bodies that spiritually symbolizes the merging of two souls in the covenant of marriage is just such a beautiful picture of sexuality. And the Greeks had nothing to do with that. I mean, sex was just for pleasure. There was no prohibition on age or sex slaves or numbers of people. I mean, it was just, there was no boundaries whatsoever. And so the Jews are going, can you just kind of get that together we would feel so much better about that. And they said, yes, we will do that. That is so awesome. That is the compromise that saved the church. That's the compromise that seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. They didn't say God says. They didn't say this is God's word. They made a compromise for radical unity. And so uh, the question I have today is what are the compromises necessary today to bring radical unity? The world out there, the world out there really is attracted to this person of Jesus Christ. The world out there loves Jesus. They cannot stand the evangelical church. For good reason. Why? We put all these codes. We put the Old Testament codes in there. You know, well, let me be really clear. Evangelicals like 5% of the Old Covenant and 9 out of the Ten Commandments. You got to do that. That makes no sense at all. If if Acts 15 didn't impose any of that on unbelievers who are attempting to put their faith in Christ, we shouldn't either. Wide open doors, flung wide open. World, you love Jesus. This world is coalescing around the cause of Christ to love other people and to love our neighbors, to love the the, the downtrodden and, and the disadvantaged, right? The world is being drawn to the cause of Christ, but the evangelical church is saying, not here, you're not good enough, you're not right enough, moral enough, pure enough, clean clean enough, go clean yourself up, go obey nine of the Ten Commandments and then we'll talk to you. The Sabbath commandments are a little too inconvenient for us. We've gotta tear down the walls that we have created between God and people. We've gotta pursue radical unity. We've gotta pursue what Jesus pursued. Tear the temple in half. There's nothing that separates us from God. Open the doors, welcome them in, love them, care for everybody who comes here. And in a community of love, in a community of radical unity, God does his work, and God's work is love, and love transforms the heart. Love makes us more like Christ, not religion. Religion has never worked. Commandments have never worked. The law has never worked. What works is love. Love in our homes, love in our neighborhoods, love in the church, love in the community that draws people to the love of God. Christ. John 1:17. the law was given through Moses. It had its place, but it doesn't anymore. It had its place to civilize barbarian tribes. There's no place for that anymore. But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Radical unity comes by revealing God's unfailing love and faithfulness through Jesus Christ and living that out with one another. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have united us with yourself through Jesus Christ. It is your work and your work alone. There's nothing we can do to earn grace, to earn forgiveness, to earn eternal life. It's something you just gave. And when we believe that, we are awakened to this reality of grace and goodness and forgiveness, and we we receive that eternal life, and all things are made new. We're no longer living lives that cause division and that cause anger and pain. As followers of Jesus, we want to to advance the cause of Jesus, which is to bring the world into a radical union with you and a radical union with one another. And this world is broken. It is broken politically, socially, culturally, and religiously broken. Because we're putting barriers in front of people and you and putting barriers in front of each other. Jesus came to tear all those down. Our hope and our faith is in him. His work of love and grace and forgiveness freely given, and we want to bring that same love, grace, and forgiveness to others that the world will know that Jesus is your son. In Christ's name we pray and everybody said amen.